let me pray for us before we look further at this together. Uh, Lord God, uh, may your word uh, shine brightly into our hearts this morning. Uh, may your spirit do that wonderful work of uh, helping us to perceive uh, the reason it was written uh, for its original recipients, but also how you now take these words and apply them to our lives and our hearts and our world. Amen. Uh, if you were with us uh, last week, of course, we looked at uh, Felix, and now, of course, uh, Felix has been removed, and a new governor has been appointed. Uh, his name is Porcius Festus. Uh, history provides a kinder assessment of his tenure. Uh, Festus was uh, just, and he was moderate, uh, more than any of his, his predecessors or his successors. However, he only apparently uh, lasted two years in office when he died. Uh, Festus wastes no time making the acquaintance of his subjects. Uh, within days, he is meeting the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem. Initially, uh, he's not swayed by their petition for Paul to be transferred to Jerusalem. Uh, we know, of course, that behind their request lies dark, murderous motives. However, uh, ten days later, when Festus convenes his court in Caesarea, it seems by this point he has been won over by political expediency. He asks Paul uh, if he's willing to stand trial before him in Jerusalem. Uh, knowing that he would not get justice in either Jerusalem or Caesarea, Paul now plays his trump card. As his is right, as a Roman citizen, he appeals to have his case heard by Caesar. And so an unstoppable legal process is activated and it will carry Paul to the heart of the empire, to Rome. Uh, judicial corruption has driven Paul to lodge his appeal in the court of Caesar, who at that time was Nero. And yet, under the sovereign hand of God, judicial corruption is commandeered to serve his purposes. For God had already re revealed his plans for Paul. We saw it back in Acts 23, verse 11. Uh, God had said to Paul there, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And so now, do you see, that through God's providential hand, his ticket to Rome is booked. I think it's an encouragement to us today, because in the macro or the micro scale, uh, God is working out his purposes in history, broadly, but also more narrowly in our individual lives. Uh, how often do we feel buffeted by the trials and tragedies of life? And yet we can trust God to providentially overrule and to use bad and sad situations to our eternal good. So, uh, a few days later, uh, King Agrippa and his sister Bernice come to pay their respects to the new governor, Festus. Uh, this is King Agrippa II. Uh, he is the last in a long line of kings in the family of Herod. Uh, Agrippa is curious to meet Paul, and this sits happily with Festus's desire to work out what on earth this is all about. After all, 
uh, Festus is going to look a bit of a chump if he sends Paul before the emperor in Rome without any substantiated charges. Agrippa is the king of the Jews. Maybe he can make sense of this situation. So another hearing is convened. And in his opening statement, we now learn what conclusion Festus has reached concerning the charges against Paul. Look again at chapter 25, verse 25. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor... I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I might have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send him, send on a prisoner without specifying the charges against him. And by the time this fifth trial is ended, both Agrippa and Festus will be of the same mind. Let's fast forward to the end of chapter 26, verse 31. This man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment, Agrippa said to Festus. This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Now, to those of you who were here last week, uh, maybe uh, this sounds all too familiar. Uh, Do not adjust your TV sets if the main headings in your sermon outline this week look strangely similar to those of last week, because they are, and intentionally so. Last week, we had the exoneration of the gospel and the challenge of the gospel. And this week, funnily enough, we've got the exoneration of the gospel and the challenge of the gospel. And the repetition reinforces the conclusion. Uh, Paul has now undergone five hearings, uh, firstly with the Roman commander in Jerusalem, uh, then the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, uh, next Felix, now Festus, and finally King Agrippa. But in each of these investigations, the outcome has been the same. Is Christianity a threat to the state? No. Uh, What explains the Jewish animosity to Christianity? Well, it's a response to Christianity's claim that it fulfills all the hopes of Judaism. What is the heart of the Christian message? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. At the risk of being boring, uh, Luke, the author, is pressing his points home. Luke is enabling his readers to know what is true and what is not true about Christianity. And in the face of inaccurate, even slanderous reports about Christianity, here is the historical evidence which brings clarity and confidence. Uh, Christianity is not some weird cookie cult. Faith in Christ is not misplaced. So, uh, we've seen firstly again the exoneration of the gospel, but secondly we see again uh, the challenge of the gospel. Uh, Let's look more closely at Paul's defense to Agrippa, because we are going to see that there are firstly three essentials of Christian conversion, and secondly three responses to the gospel. So firstly, uh, three essentials of Christian conversion. Just as with Felix in chapter 24, uh, Paul not only presents his defense, but 
but also proclaims the gospel. Uh, With Agrippa, Paul now recounts his personal history and his conversion story, as he also had done with the angry mob in the Jerusalem temple. Now, the difference here is that unlike with the angry mob, Paul isn't cut short when he mentions the G word, the Gentiles. And we now see what Paul probably would have said that day to the mob in Jerusalem if they hadn't lost it. Uh, Let's pick it up in verse 17, where Paul is recounting his commission from the mouth of the risen Lord Jesus on the Damascus Road. For we're going to see in his marching orders, there are three essentials of conversion. uh, Seeing, turning, and receiving. Uh, This is what Jesus said to Paul that day, verse 17. I will rescue you uh, from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place amongst those who are sanctified by faith in me. So, uh, the first essential of conversion, uh, seeing. Uh, Jesus says to Paul, I am sending you to them to open their eyes. Uh, The great irony is that the one who had blindly opposed the gospel was now being given spiritual sight so that he could in turn grant spiritual sight to others. Uh, Spiritual seeing is the first essential step in somebody's personal conversion. Uh, The Bible reveals that before people come to faith in Christ, the eyes of their heart have been blinded by the enemy of their soul. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. The God, with a small g of course, of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And the spiritually blind will remain blind unless God supernaturally grants them sight. And that is what he does. The God who created light now also shines light into people's hearts. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 says this, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, referring of course to the creation account, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Spiritual sight is granted through the work of God's Spirit and the work of God's Word. The Holy Spirit illuminates our hearts and brings convictions of sin. And as the Word of the Gospel is proclaimed, the Spirit endorses it with that ring of truth. The granting of spiritual sight is a miracle. It is no less miraculous than Jesus' restoration of the physical sight of blind people. When spiritual sight is granted to somebody, it turns their life upside down. 
and it's exciting. The Bible comes alive, and life is now invigorated with fresh perspective and purpose. Those famous words in John Newton's hymn ring true. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Uh, it, this sight may come uh, as a result of a dramatic das- Damascus, Damascus Road experience, or this sight may come in a more gradual way in a sort of Emmaus Road experience. Uh, whichever it be, both are works of God's Spirit and His Word. And without the sight-restoring work, we remain spiritually blind and spiritually bound. The second essential of conversion is turning. Verse 17 again. Jesus says to Paul, I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That turning involves a decision of the will. When God grants us spiritual sight, we can now discern what is dark and what is light, uh, what is of God and what is not. We now see ourselves as we truly are. We see the sin within. And we now see Jesus as he truly is. He's not just a great teacher and example, but also the powerful incarnate Son of God. He's not just the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the Lamb of God who can take away my sin. And so we turn from our sin and we turn to him. The Bible's technical word for this turning is repentance. And it starts with an initial turning to Christ and then it continues every day. Every day we repeatedly keep turning from sin and remaining orientated to Christ. And that ongoing turning is proof that the initial turning was genuine. And this was central to the message that Paul proclaimed. Look at verse 20. He says this, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. And now we come to the third essential of conversion. Because the third essential is receiving. Verse 18 again. That to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place amongst those who are sanctified by faith in me. Uh, The act of receiving implies the acceptance of a gift. Uh, Forgiveness of sins is not a wage earned, but a gift received. Uh, We come with empty hands and we are saved by grace alone. As we just sung, uh, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And at conversion, not only do we receive forgiveness of sins, but also a place amongst God's sanctified people. Uh, To be sanctified is to be holy, it's to be set apart. If you recall, we encountered it as a central theme in Leviticus. In Romans, we saw that we are declared righteous and holy before God 
through faith in Christ. And in this way, we receive a place amongst God's sanctified holy people. We become adopted sons into God's family. We become citizens of heaven. We become children of God. For those of us who have grown up in church, and for those of us who have led a relatively decent life, receiving may be harder than turning. Because it's not just that we need a little grace to sand off our rough edges. We need a Savior. And we can only receive Christ by grace through faith. And in chapter 26 of Acts, not only do we see three essentials to conversion, but also three responses to the gospel. And the first response we see is scoffing. Uh, It's in response to Paul's testimony that Christ has been raised from the dead, that Governor Festus can contain himself no longer. Uh, Let's pick it up at the tail end of Paul's defense in verse 22. Uh, Paul says, I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ would suffer and, as the first to rise from the dead, would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. He's saying, Paul, I can see you've got a great mind. You're a smart guy, but you're also crazy. Uh, He's deploying that scoffing defense mechanism. How often do Christians today face the scoffing of a secular society? You don't believe all that stuff, do you? You must be out of your mind. You must be stupid. Uh, In this age of science and secularization, uh, Christian faith can sometimes be chided as primitive and without warrant. And yet, yet look at how Paul responds, because it's very insightful. Verse 25, he says this, I am not insane, uh, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. The gospel is both true and it's reasonable. Christian faith is not blind faith. It is rooted in reason. When you look into it, you start to realize that cults are often started by someone claiming to have had a dream or a divine or angelic visitation. And everyone basically has to take their word for it. Uh, Cults are often based on the private experience of an individual uh, which is not open to scrutiny. A couple of years ago, Tracy and myself had an ongoing weekly dialogue with two women who were Mormons, a.k.a. uh, the Church of the Latter-day Saints. And it was fascinating to explore with them their reasons for believing that Mormonism to be true. Uh, Their founder, uh, Joseph Smith, claimed to have received a series of visitations from God and angels starting in 1820, 
when he was 14 years old. Uh, later, an angel named Moroni uh, showed him where a very old book was buried. Its pages were made of gold, and its language was very primitive. And Joseph translated these gold pages into English, and then published that translation as the Book of Mormon in 1830. Only two people at the time claimed to have seen the gold plates, and even then their counts contained inconsistencies, and nobody has seen the gold plates since. Uh, basically, there was no proof that what Joseph Smith claimed was true. It was based on a private experience, and people had to take it on trust if they were to take it. Christianity stands in stark contrast. Its foundations rest on not a private event, but a very public series of events. Uh, the way that Paul expresses it in verse 26 is that it was not done in a corner. Rather, it was all out in the open. The crucifixion of Christ was a very public event. The resurrection of Christ was also a public event. It was attested by many different witnesses at many different times and in many different places. It wasn't just seen by the 12 disciples, or 11 of course, because Judas wasn't one of them now. It was also seen by more than 500 believers on one occasion. Uh, people may scoff and dismiss Christianity as mere legend and nonsense. However, in reality, they couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, Christianity is reasonable, and Christianity is grounded in historical, public, attested events. So that was the first re re response to the gospel, uh, scoffing. Uh, the second response to the gospel falls from Agrippa's lips, and it is the sidestep. Now, Agrippa is well acquainted with the Jewish scriptures, and so he should be because he is the king of the Jews. And hence, Paul now can use the scriptures as his basis for an appeal that the gospel is both reasonable and true. Look at verse 27. Uh, king Agrippa, uh, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. And Agrippa can feel the noose tightening, and he opts for the sidestep. Verse 28, then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul replied, short time or long, I pray God that not only you but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. Uh, people today still deploy the sidestep and they do it in various ways. I'm too busy to investigate Christianity right now, I'll do it when I retire. Uh, I'm the black sheep of the family. God could never forgive me. Or I'm trying my best, and I hope that my best will be good enough. The sidestep. And the third response to the gospel uh, is seen in Paul himself. And the third response is surrender. On the road to Damascus, the risen Jesus uses an agricultural metaphor to describe Paul's persistent persecution. Look at verse 14. 
Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, I haven't been using goads myself, although I could be useful with my kids sometimes. Now I've learned what they are. But uh, apparently goads are sharp sticks which are used to guide an animal in a certain direction. And to kick against the goads was both painful and ultimately futile. And in persecuting the church, Paul was persecuting Christ. And yet, it is ultimately futile for Paul to oppose God and his purposes. Effectively, he's kicking against the goads. You see, in spite of Paul's ruthless persecution, the word of the Lord had continued to spread like wildfire. And the more that Paul tried to stamp it out, the more he spent, sent sparks of the gospel into the wind to ignite hearts in many more places. Paul was out of step with God's purposes for the cosmos. And yet, by God's grace, he reached the place where he surrendered his will and he surrendered his life. Verse 19. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. Paul saw, Paul turned, Paul received. And for a person to surrender their life to Christ is the greatest act of wisdom. It's to incorporate themselves into the trajectory of God's redemptive purposes. And the end point of that trajectory, of course, ultimately is glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the fact that the gospel is both true and reasonable. Thank you for this wonderful record, this historical record, which undoubtedly exonerates the gospel from all claims of falsehood uh, and all claims of it being malicious. Uh, thank you that the gospel is true. Uh, thank you also that you do this work in our hearts and our lives, opening our eyes to the truth of the gospel, uh, giving us a will to embrace Christ, to receive him and to turn from our sin and embrace him in faith. Help us, we pray, as we continue on that glorious trajectory to glory, uh, to continue every day, treading that path, keeping trusting in Christ, continuing to, return, to turn from our sin and serving him in faithful obedience. Amen.